Welcome to the Red Rain Podcast. Here is your host from Revenge of the Birds, Walter Mitchell. Thank you, Kyle Little Rock Ledbetter. So happy to be back, Cardinal fans. Uh, had a lot to talk about uh, this week. Wanted to wait till today to know what the you know 53-man roster looks like. I'm going to have thoughts on that. We're going to kick off with that in a second. We're also going to talk about the Mike Florio drama and um, you know his uh, his vendetta seemingly against the Cardinals. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I know most people are thinking it's a really bad thing, but I have a different take on that. And then uh, the Mike Lombardi, former um, NFL GM, now with NFL Network, predicting that it's not in the Cardinals, uh, to the Cardinals' advantage to play Kyler at all this year because of the risk of getting him getting injured and having to pay um, – the injury clause on his contract. So we're going to talk about those and other things um, and uh, kind of try to raise a discussion on those things. Uh, I'd be very appreciative if you chime in in the comments at revengeofthebirds.com or uh, keep our dialogues going on uh, at WBJ Mitch on Twitter. been really enjoying um mixing it up with so many of you on Twitter these days. It's been great. And uh, so, yeah, let's start with the roster. It's fascinating how this roster came together. Uh, The Cardinals claimed a league high six players off waivers. Um, I found their, the, the, the players that they picked very fascinating we're going to talk about that. Um, I'm going to go position by position and go fairly quickly. You know, and obviously now starting with the quarterback, we have Josh Dobbs and Clayton Toon um, on the active roster, and Jeff Driscoll is on the practice squad. Not sure what happened to David Blau, um, whether they preferred Driscoll over over Blau. Blau, you know, acquitted himself very well. Um, leading the team to two fourth quarter victories, both 18 to 17 wins. Um, but uh, maybe Blau has a plan to go elsewhere. I don't know. But uh, for now, um, no side of Blau at practice, and Jeff Driscoll is there. Driscoll's been injured, too. Is That was curious. Um, and he didn't get any PT during um, you know uh, the preseason games. Uh, and the team was citing injuries. So, and maybe maybe they were just holding him back. But uh, but there it is. I mean, we've got a direct competition now going between Joshua Dobbs and Clayton Toon. It was great to hear Dobbs talk uh, yesterday. What an articulate young man he is and very driven. Uh, you can tell he's pretty excited to be here with this opportunity. It was just kind of amazing that... Uh, Cardinals didn't make a stronger push to sign him from the get-go and to make the decision to move on from Colt McCoy after he had such a a rough season last year with injuries and season-ending concussion. With a new regime, it was just kind of weird to think that they'd want to embrace, you know, Colt, you know, a return for 
for Colt McCoy in that situation <clears throat> with other free agent quarterbacks available in particular, many of um, the Cardinal fans I know and myself were focused on Jacoby Brissett or Joshua Dobbs, seeing as both had ties to uh, Drew Petzing. He was their quarterback coach at Cleveland <coughs> last year. So, um, and to think that, you know, I must have made a low ball offer to, to Josh Dobbs. And I think at the time we're thinking they would hang on to Colt as well. So they didn't want to dish out a lot more money. But I mean, Dobbs took a $2 million guaranteed one-year deal with the Browns to return to them, um, which was disappointing. I mean, at the time I was like, wow. I mean, Dobbs would know he'd have a golden opportunity here to start games. And for a guy who's only started two games in his six-year career, I would have thought this would be an enticing place, particularly with his familiarity with um, Drew Petzing and, you know, one of the centers he had in Cleveland in, in Jalte uh, Froholt. Um, so, yeah, but now they made the trade. They moved on from, from McCount, um, excuse me, from McCoy. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be exciting because, you know, now I th I think both Dobbs and Clayton Toon are kind of in on an equal footing right now because um, Clayton Toon didn't get a lot of run with the ones in, in uh, preseason, uh, both in the games and in practice. He was getting more, more work with the ones in Minnesota for that joint practice. So, and I, by all accounts, and from what I saw the videos, he uh, he did quite well in that in that setting, and uh, connected with Dorch on a couple touchdowns, with Davion um, Davis on a touchdown. Um, so, you know, and he looked good throwing the ball there, whereas McCoy did not. And uh, I think that was the beginning of of um, you know the coach's decision making to move on from Colt. And uh, Toon, I thought Toon played well in the ball game. He had his highest QB rating. It was in the 90, 90s. He was pretty efficient. Um, liked the love the way he bounced back uh, after getting sacked, strip sacked on a you know blindside hit he didn't see coming, and uh, that was returned for a TD. Toon. Uh, First play back connects with Dorch up that left sideline for like 26 yards. Got the team moving down and didn't connect with Dorch going over the middle near the in the red zone. <coughs> and I think upon review, I think that's a, probably a catch that Dorch typically makes. Um, and that might have led to a touchdown, but uh, they got a field goal and it was important to get a score up on the board after, you know, being down 14 nothing, I I thought uh, Toon did a fabulous job of of uh, responding, um, and that's what you want. I mean, that's what I always loved about Carson Palmer was he'd get pissed whenever he'd made a mistake and was extra focused on answering right back. And that's a mark of a good quarterback when you can can answer to adversity. Um, the way Toon did in that game.
he didn't play much after that. And then, you know, Blau came in and, and finished off close the game. So um, it was a fun comeback win. And the defense was much improved this week, um, which was great to see. And, um, so, you know, I, I think the Dobbs and Toon are pretty much on the – have a 50-50 chance of winning out this week because because Toon hasn't worked that much with Marquise Brown and Rondale Moore and, you know, uh, with uh, – he'll have more reps with Michael Wilson and, um, you know, Zach Pascal, I, you know, I don't know if any quarterbacks connected with him yet. So, um, you know, with with uh, Dobbs coming in and he was impressed with the speed at wide receiver, you know, he's going to have to mesh with those receivers the same way that Toon is going to have to mesh with them and he's going to have to get in groove with them. And they have two weeks to do it. I would expect at this point, if things go smoothly for Dobbs, they're going to start Dobbs at Landover, Maryland on week one against the Vikings. And, um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, Toon has, Dobbs said that Petsing's offense is familiar, but there are, you know, nuances to any, you know, and, and twists to any new offense that he's going to have to learn. I thought, I loved it too, that Dobbs said when he arrived at the building um, on 6.30 in the morning on Sunday for his first First, uh, you know, um, check in with the Cardinals. There was Kyler Murray working out. They had a chance to chat, and um, and uh, Josh Dobbs said uh, it was fun picking his brains, and you know, and and uh, getting some some uh, you know orientation from Kyler. He's done his part this off season of being there in the building. To, and uh, working on his rehab. We're going to talk about the Lombardi report later and get into the situation with Murray. But, uh, but kudos to Kyler for being there. Um, so it's exciting. I mean, Bickley and Murata were asking in three words or less, uh, how would you describe Joshua Dobbs' chance of starting, um, you know, in two weeks, now 10 days? And I first wrote ground control to Major Tom and then realized that's five words, not three. So then I wrote launch rocket man. Um, so, uh, you know, everyone's going to town on that. I thought I'd, I'd hop right in, in on it. I think it's fantastic. Launching rocket man on a super blue moon. Um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe this is a quite the charm for Dobbs and for the Petsing and for the Cardinals Dobbs brings a lot to the table. He's only had two career starts, so he's not all that experienced starting games. But but he's uh, got decent size, um, and he's quite the athlete. Um, he can move around, and um, he's got a good arm, and he acquitted himself quite well in his two starts with the Titans last year. Um, come in and basically started after a run um, sneak into the playoffs. And uh, he had a fourth quarter lead going against the Jaguars for the for the division title. They were so uh, close. They were so yep. close. And then a strip sack and a strip six. They were so close to having Josh mm-hmm. Dobbs start a playoff game. I know it. And uh, 
got to give him credit. So the way that he came in and seized that opportunity can give you, you know, he'll have twice the amount of time this time around um, and be more familiar with the offense, I would imagine, and learning, you know, the plays. And, you know, a lot of it's similar to what he was doing at Cleveland. Some of it, as he said, isn't, you know, there are, um, there are wrinkles that, uh, you know, Petsing has brought in. So, um, you know, and the Cardinals intend to be run heavy and they've got James Conner. Um, interesting news this week was that the Cowboys have make, been making a push for James Conner. Um, you know, I've, I was saying, I hope that doesn't happen because I think James Conner is a captain, deserves to be a captain. He's our bell cow running back. We only have young players behind him. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe down the road this season, if the Cardinals are losing and, and uh, come trading deadline, maybe it makes better sense then. And by then, maybe Keontae Ingram and Imari DiMarcato are, are uh, you know, clicking in the offense and, or, you know, you feel like you can hand it over to them. I, and I think at some point we'll probably see an addition at running back um, to this roster. So, but uh, like those three, uh, Ingram really came on um, in in uh, the preseason games, liked what we saw out of him. And then DiMercato has, in my opinion, the it factor. He's, Plays well at State Farm Stadium. Um, you know, he had that game-winning touchdown in week one of preseason, which was awesome. And and he's a, you know, tough-nosed kid who I think will, could possibly win the kickoff return job. So, tremendous. Um, moving to the offensive line, which is so key. The five starters that they've had pretty much from the beginning, T.J. Humphreys, at left tackle, Elijah Wilkinson at left guard, Schalte, uh Froholt at center, Will Hernandez at right guard, and Paris Johnson Jr. at right tackle. They've been together starting. Um, they're poised and ready to go. The Cardinals made some fascinating additions. Um, Ill Manning they got from the 49ers, a left tackle, who's a fascinating prospect. He's a smaller-than-average tackle at 6'2", 293, but uh, he played really well for the 49ers, and I know a number of their fans are are disappointed that that uh, that at least Manning didn't slide through to their practice squad. He's a left tackle, although he might kick to guard at some point um, because he lacks ideal height. But um, but he played over 60 games in Hawaii and. Um, was one of the more fascinating tackle prospects coming in. He did well in, in preseason. Uh, he had a lot, a lot of snaps, over 100 snaps. His uh, pass blocking grade was really good at 67.2. His run blocking was not quite as good at 50.8, but he had two penalties. That's what cut that down um, in the run blocking game. Um, so, but uh, this is a guy that that has a fascinating upside and and potentially some versatility. But he'll back up DJ. Got Dennis Daly backing up Wilkinson. That has been a um, competition from day one. Daly had been nicked up, and I'm not sure what, what his status is. He was not participating in practice this week, at least early on. But uh, 
And I thought they might put him on the IR this week, later this week, after the roster was set, which they can do and, and have him be out for four games. And that might still happen, perhaps today. But, uh, you know, you got Daly there um, behind Wilkinson. We got now Keith Ishmael, also from the 49ers. Love that we poached the 49ers um, at two positions where two of their best, um, you know, uh, depth guys. I mean, Ishmael had quite the preseason, 67.5 overall, 68.1 pass blocking, 65.7 run blocking. He had a, he had over 100 snaps and played really well. Um, and then you had Tristan Colon uh, from the Jets, who was garnering trade interest. He was playing so well. Um, 67.3 grade for... Uh, for preseason, 74.2 pass blocking, 62.8 run blocking, and one penalty. Um, he's a center who can also slide into guard, so he'd be the, the you know backup guard to Will Hernandez at right guard. Um, and then Kelvin Beecham being the swing tackle um, and backing up Paris Johnson Jr. You know, there's some depth there and some really really fascinating youth um really love the move they made now they they put the claim in on two centers and I, my theory was that you know you don't know you just you put a claim in on two centers if you're trying to guarantee you'll at least get one and the cardinals had the third uh pick in the pecking order and they didn't know whether the the bears or the texans would take a center or claim a center they turned out it turned out that they didn't so the Cardinals ended up getting both guys, but I think they're happy. They're really happy with that, and uh, with uh, unfortunately, um, Mr. Gaines out uh, out on IR for the season. John Gaines, oh man, um, that was that was a tough, um, you know, thing to learn. He was playing so well and really doing his thing. And, we hope that he bounces back fast after and well after, you know, um, with his rehab and can get back on the field next year and compete um, the way he was doing. He certainly has a bright future, I believe, at either center or guard. Um, and I know that, that the coaches and the GMs are really high on him. So, um, but yeah, I, I kind of like the way this offensive line is, is shaping out. I, was not a fan of the uh, Josh Jones trade, um, and uh, hopefully that doesn't come back to bite the Cardinals. But picking up Il Manning takes softens that a little bit. And now you know with Manning, they got his under control. He's a rookie; you could have him for four years. Um, yeah, not bad um, considering. So if he, you know, I think he's someone they could really develop. Um. On the practice squad behind those guys, uh, they they got back Hayden Howerton, who had a good preseason, I thought, and has this great versatility. He can play any spot on the line. He can play center. He can play guard. He played left tackle because they needed someone in there without Josh Jones um, to play the second half. Um, and I, you know, he, he had a couple issues with with the. Uh, with the pass rush on a couple of occasions that I saw, but in the running game, he was plowing people. Up. And I, I think his adjustment to left tackle was going to be a little, you know, take a little time. So 
but the fact that he can play anywhere along the line is great. And then we got uh, Jackson Barton. I thought had a really good camp at this right tackle. You know, I could see next year if you know uh, if they if. TJ Humphreys moves on. I could see them moving Paris Johnson Jr. over to left tackle. And I think Jackson Barton could be right in the mix there with Kelvin Beecham um, and probably a draft pick and maybe even Il Manning moving him over to the right side. So the future looks bright there, I think, um, with the young players um, that they've acquired. And uh, I like, you know, the guy that I really like. Um, making decisions on offensive linemen is Dave Sears, the assistant GM, who helped build that incredible, uh, incredibly good top five of offensive line now on the Lions. And um, we're going to talk about Sears a little bit later. But um, the wide receiver position now is back down to five. They had initially kept um, Arius, the the rookie from uh, from. Um, Colorado, excuse me, Daniel Arias, uh, who had a really fine camp, made made explosive plays in second halves of games and was a standout on special teams. And I imagine that Jeff Rogers really banged the drum for him um, to keep him um, as the sixth. Now they waived him once they had to waive uh, five players, uh, you know, in light of the six claimed they have kept a roster spot open for Aaron Brewer, the long snapper, who they're going to keep on the practice squad for a week and then sign him to the regular roster. Um, they're doing that because that's a vet thing to do with veterans. You don't want to guarantee their salary. You know, Brewer's had some injury issues. so And they did that, I believe, with him last year. So he knows the drill, but he has every intention of being healthy all year. And, you know, um, he's just going to and take one week on the practice squad, and it's not going to affect him uh, much financially at all. So um, he's just got to get through the first week, and I think they'll they'll promote him at some point soon. Um, so, but Marquise Brown, quiet, kind of a ghost. Zach Pascal, uh, kind of a ghost in preseason. Um, I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of rapport Josh Dobbs gets with these guys and Clayton Toon because he hasn't had much time with him. Michael Wilson was a preseason standout. He's now gets a chance to really dig in. And then, uh, you know, between Rondell Moore and Greg Dortch, we've got really good slot guys. Um, and Pascal can play the slot as well. So we got talent there. And it'd be interesting to see if, you know, how well, as I say, that Dobbs and Toon can connect with these guys. I mean, this is a big year for Marquise Brown. He's in a contract year. Rondell Moore is in year three and hasn't had a real true breakout season yet. Dorch the Torch, um, you know, had, was the darling of preseason again. Um, and what a gamer and what a baller we have in him. Hopefully his role expands more than it was last year. And then Pascal is great special teamer. Um, and, um, you know, with Arias probably coming back, hopefully he does not get claimed and he's on the practice squad. They also kept Andre Bocelli and, um, and uh, Caden Davis, who I really liked, particularly 
not only as a slot receiver, but as a as a punt returner when Dorch um, you know, needs a break. Uh I think he make you know, I think Caden Davis is gonna be elevated to the roster on some games. Um you can look forward to that. And Davion Davis, I was looking this morning, what about him? He's still out there as a free agent. Um, would have loved to see him get him back. Of course, he had that, got the, from the hail blow, heave, touchdown, a la DeAndre Hopkins in a crowd. Um, Davis had a really good camp. I liked him a lot. And uh, so maybe uh, at some point, Cardinals bring him back. I mean, right now, maybe he's weighing his options. I mean, I just read... Kyle, did you see that the Colts only have three wide receivers on their roster right now? I did see that, which I, I guess they can bring some people up from the practice squad later, but the fact they only kept three at the time was really interesting. Right. I saw the, the Patriots only kept two running backs, too. And one quarterback <laughs> on mm-hmm. their initial roster, which was bizarre. I mean, I was begging the Cardinals to claim... Bailey Zappi, I can't believe he was not claimed by anyone, especially in this day and age when you, you can active have three quarterbacks, um, you know, active on game day, and the third one doesn't count unless you play him, um, and the third one can come up from the practice squad. I just was, uh, wow, I just couldn't believe that that he went unclaimed. Back up for the for Mac Jones. Um, That'd be interesting that to see if that happens. Oh, but nothing's happened yet on that front. Plus, I mean, with a lot of these veterans who are out there right now, teams generally want to wait beyond week one to sign them because, again, they don't want to guarantee contracts come week one, um, veteran contracts. So you're going to see more action next week out of people um, when it comes to that. But uh, – Oh, I just, and then the tight end situation, you got Zach Ertz who said he's not sure if he can play week one, and I I tend to doubt that he will. But Trey McBride, this could be a huge year for him in an offense that suits his skills really well, could make him a go-to guy. Jeff Swaim, um, who's you know, the experienced veteran uh, from Tennessee that they got, and this you know, waiver claim, Elijah Higgins, from Miami. Um, if you look on my uh, article on Revenge of the Birds, I posted a video of him there, of a breakdown of how he was, how well he was playing for the Dolphins. He was a six-round draft pick for them, and he's uh, Michael Wilson's teammate from from Stanford, and kind of a tweener. I mean, they have him at tight end, but you know he's because he's like six three, two thirty something. Um, which is a little small weight-wise for a tight end, but it's a little heavy weight-wise for a wide receiver. So he's kind of a tweener there. But what he is is he's a he's a flex player, move in space. He's got really good speed. I think it's five, four, five speed for a guy that size is really good. So um, yeah, that was an exciting pickup. Uh, they had to wave Blake Whitehart. Hart, who uh, led the Cardinals tight ends in receptions and yards this preseason and looked good at it. Um, hopefully he clears waivers, and I think he will, and he will, he'll be back on the practice squad. Um, 
and they kept Bernard Sakovitz on the practice squad, which he gets an ex exemption. You know, so that that's all in good. Um, so there's your offense. Uh, I think it's sneaky talented. It's going to depend on this offensive line gelling. I think this is going to be the most physical, um, rugged offensive line we've had in a while for that blow zone blocking scheme. Um, outside zone. Wow. Um, and you got Connor in there setting the tone as the bell cow. And you've got, you know, five receivers who could make you have, you know, good ability. And generally this, this, this group has speed. So, you know, who knows? Um, and the tight ends are, you know, once they get Ertz back, the one, two points of Ertz and McBride could be really special. And then, you know, if you're going to use this kid Higgins as a flex player, that adds to a dimension to it as well. On defense, um, in the up front, they kept six. Uh, the starters look to be LJ Collier at defensive end, Lecky Fotu at nose tackle, and Jonathan Ledbet Ledbetter at defensive tackle. And then the backups at defensive ends, Dante Stills, the rookie who had a couple sacks, nice sacks in preseason. He's a situational pass rusher. Kevin Strong at nose tackle, um, and Carlos Watkins, who I thought had showed the most upside of all the um, uh, he and Collier, I thought really stood out. Um, is is uh, listed as a backup right now, but I think he's going to get a ton of playing time. And plus, on special teams, he blocked that field goal. Um, if you recall in preseason, um, that was huge in game one against the Broncos. So, you know, he's a good special teamer as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how those guys hold up because, uh, you know, the coaches have really praised them and thought very highly of them. And, you know, they played pretty well in the preseason. They did. Um, you know, not bad. Uh, and occasionally, you know, getting their hands up and passing lanes, that was really good. Looks like they're well coached. Um yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a superstar in there, um, but I think they're they're you know rugged guys who get after it, and uh, you know the the key will be can who can get the pass rushing pressure on in from nickel and dime, and I think Stills has that ability. I think Watkins does, and Collier, and maybe Ledbetter if he's got his game to the next level, and maybe Lecky. Um, Lecky looks rejuvenated. The tough part there was losing Richard Lawrence, who just didn't look like himself all this offseason. He did not get claimed, to my knowledge, yesterday, which means maybe the rest of the league is tuned in on maybe that, you know, we're not seeing the, the uh, Richard Lawrence that we saw when healthy last year, at the beginning of last year, when he was grading as the highest defensive interior player on the Cardinals roster at 64.5 um, other than uh, you know at, at that position at nose tackle excuse me because J.J. Watt was doing well and so was uh, Zach Allen but at nose tackle he was the highest graded nose tackle for the Cardinals and he was doing his part until he got hurt five games in lost for the season unfortunately um, at inside linebacker kept five players a lot of them are special teamers, special teamers like Zeke Turner, who's you know a favorite of Jeff Rogers, 
Josh Woods is a all-star special teamer. Owen Popo is going to be playing a ton of 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 uh, special teams. Um, yeah, you know, he's this fast kid who's knocking on the door to try to play. You get in, you know, snaps and in the regular defense, particularly in coverage with his speed. It looks like the what the two starters are going to be Kaiser White, who we saw briefly and looks like you know quite the star for this defense at uh, right inside linebacker and Chris Barnes at left inside linebacker. Um, the undrafted, you know, the undrafted free agent who uh, played for the last few years at uh, Green Bay. Um, yeah, I mean, um, Barnes is physical. I mean, Woods had a really good camp too. He's going to be in there in the mix. And Pepo is the future. Um, so they got a good little group going there, maybe better than we've had in quite some time. I mean, on the edges now, you got even Collins who quitted himself really well. Looks like a real natural fit at the, you know, setting the edge, a strong outside linebacker. Behind him, Cameron Thomas had a really good preseason. Victor DeMichije is one of the star special team players. Was kind of quiet in preseason, but, uh, you know, the coaches like him. Jesse Lucchetta, now our Mr. Everything, um, fullback, special teamer, um, you know, outside linebacker, was very disruptive. I put him in the, on the goal line defense at outside linebacker because he's a penetrator. And he, he'd get in your backfield and bite your kneecaps off. Um, there, there's going to be roles for him on defense, I think. And then, uh, you know, on the other side, the weak side, the rusher, you had Dennis Gardeck and B.J. Ojolari and M.J. Sanders, three three guys with uh, upside as pass rushers that have, have you know, since Gardeck tore his ACL, he hasn't been the impact he was, uh, you know, back then. However, he's looked like he's flashing like he's back to where he was um, or close to it. And then, um, you know, Ojolari, uh, you know, is now getting his feet wet. He's back in the fold, and Sanders has been nursing a, a you know injured hand, but the cast has come off, and so now he's probably champing at the bit, getting ready to go. So, no, really wanted to see Zach, the sack master McLeod, make the team after his three sacks. I looked him up this morning. He hasn't signed on with any practice squad or any team. Um, would love to see him come back. I mean, you know, the, the thing you want to know is, can he do that against NFL starters? You know, I mean, he was doing this against second and third streamers, teamers with the Vikings, but wow, he looked so natural and quick and, um, you know, uh, and such great chaser chasing down the ball, great nose for where the ball was going. I really loved what I saw from him. So love to see the Cardinals add him back to the practice squad at least. Um, and maybe they have a scenario mapped out for him. I, I would love to see that. Uh, I'd love to see him back in the fold. Uh, at cornerback, Marco Wilson's been injured. Hopefully he's ready to go this week. But uh, I don't know about that. He wasn't participating in practice earlier in the week. They kept Christian Matthew behind him. Um, I was surprised at that based on Matthew's tackling struggles, which in this defense I know won't be tolerated. Um, 
but he has not looked good as a tackler, nor has he looked good in press coverage. He's got a long way to go to try to get decent at that. But he is pretty solid off the ball um, in coverage and off the ball, you know, in run support, particularly if he sticks his nose in there and finishes the tackle. So uh, on the other side, I think, you know, you're going to get a lot out of uh, the sixth-round rookie, um, Catro Clark. Um, boy, oh boy, has he had a good camp, and boy, he look, looks the part. Behind him, they added uh, um, Starling Thomas, a uh, guy who ran a four-two-eight at his pro day um, UA, from UAB, uh, undrafted rookie who had a pretty good camp going with the Lions. And I know that the, the Lions were hoping to get him back on the practice squad because he's a you know really good young talent. And he'll stick you. Um, he's got a nose for the ball. And, um, yeah, I was really, really pleased to see uh, that the Cardinals got a young, um, talented corner um, off the waiver wires like Thomas. I mean, he's got a lot of upside. I don't know how much run he'll get early on. But, yeah, so they only have four corners on the roster. So, um you know, uh, although no, they don't check it. Excuse me, they have six corners uh, because Antonio Hamilton's back. He probably will start opposite Catrell Clark if if Marco Wilson's out week one. And then you know, and Hamilton had a I thought a good training camp. Um, he had that great interception, so <clears throat> looks like his game's rounding into form. And then Chris Boyd, the uh, special teamer who I didn't see much in coverage, um, but it, he might be a designated gunner on special teams that Jeff Rogers really loves. I think, the, the you know, and now when you go to special teams, Nolan Cooney had one of the finest punting displays during the preseason of any punter in the NFL. He uh, averaged 49 yards a kick and net of 47, which is awesome. You get a net of 47, you're doing a lot, right? Um and he pinned seven of his 10 punts inside the 20, which was also awesome. And he, you know, hand, hands down won the punting job. Matt Prater uh, getting used to a you know, new holder, perhaps. or And one of uh, Aaron Brewer's snaps against the Vikings was a little errant. And um, although I thought that uh, Cooney did a good job of, of putting it down. That was led to one of Prater's misses. You know, he's Prater's been around a long time. He's got the big leg. His leg looks really strong. He was rooting every kickoff in deep into the end zone. So hopefully they'll get that chemistry going and get it settled. Um, but the real big winner on the coaching staff was Jeff Rogers. I mean, he got all of his dogs. Um, and in the offseason, you could see they were really focusing in on create you know uh, getting really good special team players cardinals finished second in the nfl in special teams um in preseason they were top five last year um so you know this is really something um i believe they were top five 
I, I'm pretty sure. I know they were way up there. They're definitely top 10. I think it was top five. And, um, you know, in preseason, they were second to the Chargers and Lions were third. So, and I think if Prater ma makes one more field goal, they were would have been first because um, they were right behind the, they were in the 90s, right behind the, uh, or maybe 89 and the, and the Chargers were 90.2 or something. So, and the cars were 89.8, so right there. But yeah, this is putting the special and special teams. We got, we got gunners and you know we got aces running in there. Plus, with Dorch returning punts, he might be the kickoff returner too. As I said, Demarcado might might get in there. Yeah, um, we're hoping to get Garrett Williams off the NFI list, non-football related injury. Um, that's disappointing. Uh, thus far, uh, that uh, we haven't seen that, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, hopefully, uh, you know, sooner than later, we can see what we've got in Garrett Williams. I think we're going to need him because we're kind of thin at cornerback right now, and that's one area I think Bears looking at, uh, and some area in an area really we really need uh, improvement um, this season from. So, but there it is. There's your roster. Um, six new guys in the fold. I think there's upside in all six of them. Obviously the, the, you know, the GMs were high on these guys. Um, that's always exciting. You can add to your roster, six, six young players that could really help you and, they all have to be young because to be in the waiver wire, you have to have four or less years of experience, NFL experience. The guys who have more than four years experience become automatic free agents. So that's the way that works. All right. So, yeah, we're, I think we're set. There might be some tinkerings. I think that Dennis Daly might go on the IR which they can do now once the roster is set and guys who go on the IR now will miss four games. But once they were set on the original roster on Tuesday, now these days they can go on the IR at any time. Um, there might be some shuffling arounds before, you know, in the next couple of days, but basically our roster is pretty set now. We'll see what happens. Um, so shifting gears. The discussion now of Mike Florio's apparent vendetta against the Cardinals. Um, <laughs> this has just been persistent throughout the offseason. I mean, Florio has been very vocal about and um, very critical about Jonathan Gannon's, uh, you know, um, rules violation during the uh, two-week Super Bowl preparation of taking the phone call from Monty Austin for Florio's been all over that, like white on rice. And recently, you know, he jumped in on the bandwagon of the pundits around the NFL who said, if the Cardinals weren't tank, you know, tanking overtly before, once they released Colt McCoy, McCoy, that was it. It's clear. They're just tanking. Um, and 
you know, Florio claimed that, you know, it's, it could get so bad that Jonathan Gannon could be one and done as a head coach. And that ruffled a lot of feathers. And But I'll, I'll tell you this. I mean, you know, I saw Bidwell's face during the Chiefs game. When they panned over, Monty Austin's fort looked irate. Um, he was really pissed off. Um, they were not liking what they were seeing a lot of that game. And, you know, Mike, if, if they have to sit through games like that Chief game where the defense was just awful, um, just plain, you know, awful, and um, the offense was sputtering, it was doing okay here and there. I mean, if they have to sit through a bunch of games and we're losing again by big margins at home and not winning at home, and they got to sit there through all this this season. There's, you know, Bidwell has a history. He's got a history of, uh, you know, firing coaches who have, you know, real rock bottom seasons. And you know, I don't think he wants to fire another coach after one year and the precedent's been set there and everything. But, uh, yeah, I, I think you know, it's, I can see where Florio's coming from because there's that precedent. And so, um, <laughs> I wrote a tweet for you guys who've seen the, the, uh, the series suits. There's eight seasons. Um, it's on Netflix. I've been binging it. I'm on uh season seven now, um, early part of season, season, season seven. And uh, I made this analogy after the Florio thing was that, you know, here I'll read it word for word, post it on Twitter. Bidwell has a history of firing any head coach who loses bad. However, this year is like a season of suits. Monty is Harvey Specter and JG is Mike Ross. Harvey will do everything to protect Mike, despite Florio being the relentless DA. JG stays unless Bidwell stays as volatile as Lewis Litt. So, if you've seen Lewis Litt, I mean, that it does remind me of Bidwell. He flies off the handle, I mean, and, and uh, cuss people out um, with the best of them. And, you know, uh, more about Bidwell coming up because of the now the wars come out about Steve Wilkes' uh, um, deposition. Um, about the burner phones and all that, but but you know, I think that Monty's gonna you know do everything he can to hold on to JG, and I think that hopefully cooler heads will prevail. Unless, and this is a kind of if you look down the road, if they're really awful and they get the number one pick and they get Caleb Williams, I think it would behoove the Cardinals to consider an offensive head coach like they did, you know, getting rid of Wilkes in favor of getting an offensive coach in Kingsbury, which for three years had this thing real, you know, moving forward in an impressive fashion. Um, you know, imagine if they could convince Lincoln Riley to come with them. Um, imagine that. Uh, so, I mean, if you, you look at it, I mean, 
it might be a hard sell to sell the Cardinals on any quarterback, but if you had a package deal where Caleb Williams is coming with, you know, Lincoln Riley, um, wow. I mean, <clears throat> now I'm not saying I want that or wish that necessarily. I mean, I want to see what JG can do. There's a lot about JG I like. There's some things that I, I wonder about. I'm just not sure yet. If we can trust what he says is true. Because um, I didn't think that there was equal competition for all positions, um, particularly a quarterback where he gave Colt McCoy the preponderance of first-team reps, which by now is a, has been a colossal waste. Um, and then with the Humphrey situation, I never thought Josh Jones – I mean, I think Humphreys was appointed – king of the you know of the nest the minute they that monty and you know um company entered the building um and i no, i would imagine that came right from bidwell who said here's the guy you want to hitch your wagon to um and and said that dj had was the epitome of having a football integrity um, which I found a little surprising at that, seeing as DJ's done all these holdouts and made it clear his bag was came before anything else. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, when he's under contract, he could have shown up and played. Um, people say business is business, but when you're a captain of the team, that's another thing. I mean, Buddha did it um, until this year, and maybe he was taking a page out of DJ's book or and or Kyler's or whatever. And there were other issues with Buddha with this, you know, that these kind of things have got to be worked out so that, you know, the team, it doesn't have to suffer because of the contract situations of certain individuals that you're relying heavily on, particularly team captains like Kyler and DJ and Buddha, you know, so, um, and there were others. So, uh, but uh, Florio's sent out a uh, an apology to Cardinals fans. Um, you know, he, and he said all along, "I know you guys are pissed at me, but you have bigger. If 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 you're pissed at me more than anything else, then you have you know bigger problems on your plate because of the dysfunction within the organization." And I know people are sort of fed up from of uh, you know with regard to Florio's takes on things. And it is largely negative. But here's the thing. The Cardinals have been down for so long. I mean, fans outside of Arizona do not want to see the Cardinals end up with Caleb Williams and backing their way in and just tanking and being, the you know, crappy old Cardinals to do it. They don't want to see that. Um, they just don't. They want to see one other, uh, you know, a more charming team, a more, in their minds, deserving team get him um, than the Cardinals. I mean, I think also people are kind of, you know, uh, dubious about the whole the way the whole Kyler thing has shaken down. Um, there are those who, are, you know, kind of um, sympathize with Kyler there are those who still really feel like Kyler brought so much of this on himself. Um, that's been a polarizing thing as well. I think that 
a lot of people would love to see the Cardinals supposedly getting stuck with Kyler through the duration of his uh, contract. Now, like we said before, Kyler's been doing his part. And now the the Lombardi report came out, which he expressed on um, the Pat McAfee show, that um, he doesn't believe it's in the Cardinals' advantage at all to play Kyler Murray this season. <clears throat> and he had it broken down. He said that they could get out of his contract as long as Kyler's healthy. If he were to play and get injured again, then like $92 million of the contract remaining that they can get out of would now kick back in because of the injury clause. And the way he had it, he's an old GM, so he knows how to break it down. He said the way the Cardinals can get out now is $35 million after this season. So... Um, if that's the case, you know, and he said that's the way this contract was worked. And, you know, the Cardinals are well aware of it. And the biggest thing they can't risk is Kyler getting injured. Now, I get that. The Cardinals have since denied that and said that, you know, they fully intend to have Kyler play this season. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, put them in the spotlight where this is concerned. And, uh, you know, the, the answer is clearly this. The question will be whether Kyler wants to play this year at any point. And there's been much made about what about in four weeks from now if the Cardinals are on four and looking awful, would Kyler really want to come back? Um, particularly how you know anxious he's going to be testing out the leg and there's going to be some, some nervousness with that for, for any player who's, who's coming back from that kind of a, um, injury, an ACL, torn ACL. And, uh, you know, meniscus repair, uh, you know, so, well, in my opinion, it boils down to this. I mean, if Kyler says, I'm ready, I want to play, he's going to play. I can't imagine the Cardinals saying, no, we're going to shut you down. Um, I think they'd be anxious to see how he does. I mean, it works to their favor in the sense that if Kyler comes back and he looks good, then they don't have to worry about taking. I mean, he looks really, really good. He looks like he's back to his, his old form, <clears throat> and he's staying healthy out there. He's producing. Then, man, um, you know, they can build this thing around him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they'd want to see. Now, here's the other thing. People could say, well, you, you're risking, too, is diminishing Kyler's trade value. Well, this is why I was so upset about the Isaiah Simmons um, giveaway. Is that, you know, I mean, Isaiah Simmons was the highest profile draft pick we've had since Kyler. I mean, the two of them were the biggest, two biggest high profile players we've drafted. If they traded Isaiah Simmons for a seven and their best, you know, player on offense, DeAndre Hopkins gets you nothing in a trade because of Kyler's contract and the questions about his, his short and long-term health. They're not going to get, I can't imagine them getting a, you know, a, a hall of picks or even, you know, a day two pick. I mean, if they get any, 
it would probably be a day three pick at some point. Especially, so you, too, because the only reason they would trade Kyler Murray is because they're in line to draft Caleb Williams, right? And so in that scenario, right. the whole league knows that you're trying to trade him. You don't have any leverage in that situation. You have to get rid of him because you know you, you've kind of made it clear that you're going to get this Correct. new quarterback. There's no Correct. everyone knows that he's available. Now, what it's going to take is a team, a couple of teams to want to trade for Kyler. Now, with the Cardinals having paid a lot of the signing bonus, his salary is, will be more affordable for um, teams who take him. Plus, it's now, even with his salary the way it is now, he's probably sixth in the league now um, with other fifth or sixth. And, and more to come when the Burrows, when Burrow resigns. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you have, you'll, if you have a couple teams that are interested, and I think some teams will be interested, but I don't think you're going to get much in return for Kyler. I mean, the precedent's been set too. If you're going to give Isaiah Simmons away for, who is only going to count a million dollars to the Giants because the Cardinals, Here's the other thing. I mean, here they were, you know, holding on to Colt McCoy. And then <clears throat> at the beginning of training camp, they gave Isaiah Simmons his $2.4 million roster bonus, which is due at that time. So he made eight hundred grand a week for three weeks before getting shipped off to, uh, oh, wow, what a way to get paid for three weeks of training camp. Um 800k amazing 2.4 million which they didn't have to pay him if they wanted to trade him before that they could have done it um it's just a colossal waste um and so because they paid the bonus early all he costs the giants is one million dollars to play this year it's barely you know practically the veteran it's a veteran minimum um unbelievable so if you you're only gonna you're gonna accept a seventh round pick on that scenario, I mean precedent has been set. <clears throat> teams can wait, and they can wait, and I'll play it like teams did with the Hopkins situation, to where the Cardinals have no same thing with Honey Badger, to where they have no leverage left and they just gonna release him, and let him out there, and then he he you know Kyler could bid on his own. Um, Kyler might even make out better that way if they do it that way. But I've always said from the beginning of this year, I think this is a two-way tryout. I think Kyler's trying out the new GM and coaches, and I think the new GM and coaches are trying out Kyler. I think they'd, they'd like to see Kyler come back so they can see whether what kind of a fit he is. Um, you know, but that's going to be entirely up to Kyler. Uh, it'll be his decision. And if Kyler says, I'm ready, I want to play, he's going to play. I mean, I can't, again, imagine. The only thing that, you know, I, I can't imagine, too, Kyler's been really good and after his, his uh, rehab. He's been really good. I mean, you find him in, in the building at 6.30 a.m. on a Sunday. I mean... 
come on, man, that's awesome. So it wouldn't make sense that he's working this hard to rehab to not come back. Yeah, he could be saying, if I've got the rest of the year off, then I'm not having to play. I can just do it at my own pace. I have a whole year to get ready for next year. <laughs> that hasn't looked to be the case at all. Um, so, you know, I think that, but a lot will be depend, you know, where, how the team's doing. And, you know, Kyler could, it's in his hands too, to just say, no, um, just don't feel ready mentally or physically. Someone close to Kyler, who I trust, told me that uh, the knee's good at this point. It's Kyler's, you know, nervous. And I get that. Um, I totally get that. He's nervous about pushing it too soon. And I, you know, I think that's a legitimate way to be thinking. And so it's just going to take a while mentally for to get right i don't know how if the team's losing and maybe even losing badly that's going to incentivize him to you know summon up the courage to come back and be a part of this um but you know i think that you know kyler would love to play if he could get himself in the right situation and um i wouldn't rule out a trading deadline deal either you know, if, if if the Cardinals activate him before that and he's looked good in practice, they could uh, make a trading case for him for a team that is a quarterback away from, um, you know, perhaps competing for a title. And they need one now. And I don't know how they could work it out financially, but maybe they could. Actually, this year is, is his last year of not, you know, making, 51 million in a year so maybe it's affordable maybe it is you know maybe there's something that can be done um maybe the team that trades for him has got a whole new deal worked out for him who knows but that's another potential scenario where kyler could be actually very interested in that is you know getting himself back out on the field and looking good in practice he'd have all that support behind him of how hard he's worked to get back all of the positive vibes about him in the building this year with his teammates, et cetera. So he's got, you know, he had some damage control to do, I think, about his image um, following last season at the end of the season before. I think you have to commend him for doing all the right things to this point to be where he is. And I think there's, you know, he's driven to do that because – his goal is, like he says, to win Super Bowls. Now, he said he wants to win them in Arizona, but, you know, the circum circumstance right now, I mean, they're not very close to being a, a, even a playoff contender. So one would imagine um, it's going to take a big time. And Kyler may want something more immediate, uh, you know, to go to a team that's playoff ready, with a good defense and a good uh, receiving core. So that's it. I'm going to dive into the Wilk situation um, 
more at length, but I'll just briefly say about this in the report yesterday. It was so disturbing um, on a number of levels. Uh, Kyle, if you look up the ESPN article um, that was written yesterday, um, I'd love it if you could read some excerpts from that. Uh, it was, uh, wow, I mean, what a stunning um, deposition Wilkes gave. I mean, basically corroborating all that's been said about the burner phones. But he added some stuff in there about the worst of it for me was hearing that, um, you know, how volatile uh, Bidwell was throughout this whole thing. How that uh, Kyler said he went to Terry McDonough and said, I'm not comfortable with this burner phone situation. And he said, uh, can you please express that to Michael Bidwell for me? Because I don't want to alienate, my, alienate myself from him, but I... I'd want him to know that I just, this really doesn't feel right to me. So the next day, Wilkes said he's at practice and he looks over and Michael Bidwell is just cussing out um, uh, Terry McDonough on the sidelines, just ripping him. Um, and Wilkes said, I knew what the conversation was. And uh, oh my goodness. Um, yeah, so right then, Wilkes knew, I mean, this was, I mean, what was he going to do? I mean, I have a guy on Twitter who's who's writing to me saying this was just as much Wilkes' fault by accepting this as it was Bidwell's or Kimes or Terry McDonough's. And I, I don't get that at all. I mean, Wilkes, Wilkes was not, I mean, who could have been comfortable with that situation? Think no, it's it it's it's, way, a, it's an incorrect assessment because of the power dynamics. My, not only is Michael Bidwell yeah. uh, Steve Wilkes's boss, he's like his boss's boss at that point. There's a huge power imbalance there. Yeah, um, the power dynamics are huge. I mean, you know, and how many of us have been, you know, been coerced into? But the, here's the thing: had that scenario with the burner phones, but Wilkes said it got so bad. I mean, he said he got just cussed out by Bidwell on a number of occasions. He said the worst one was after a game. He was driving home with his six-year-old son in the car. The phone, you know, the, the phone came on, on speaker. And there, there was Bidwell just absolutely ripping him. You know, embarrassing. You know, the team is embarrassing him and the state of Arizona and you know, and his son had to hear all this. I mean, time and place, right? We I mean, just hear these reports now. They're the thing was with the with the deposition was Wilkes was not subjected to a cross, you know, examination, cross, you know, um, testimony um, to uh, Bidwell's lawyers. So the lawyers said that they should throw Wilkes's. Cardinals lawyers said they should throw his deposition out. Shouldn't be legit. Um, the arbiter, arbit, arbitrator said, no, well, they're going to keep it, but probably until they get the cross on, on Wokes, it might not be admissible. So, and I can imagine, you know, they're probably going to bully 
try to bully folks with this cross. I don't know what they have on him. I mean, I think it's pretty clear the burner phones were not were not Wilkes's idea. I mean, imagine this. I have not seen a scenario of a first-year NFL head coach um, coming into a scenario where in his first training camp, he doesn't have his GM on site. His GM's been suspended for drunk driving. And then he's been asked to do communicate illegally against the NFL rules, suspension rules, with the GM during training camp. With the burner phones and all this, all, you know, secret, secret. I mean, then fully knowing that the, despite the GM not being on the site, um, you know, the GM's picking the roster. I mean, plus the GM hired the offensive coaches. My, you know, Mike McCoy was the GM's hire and the offensive coordinator. So the OC is beholden to Kime. Kime signed Sam Bradford to be the starting quarterback at $20 million a year. I mean, Kime made all those moves on the other side of the ball, which turned out all of them to be colossal mistakes. But Kime is going to pick that roster, whether he was there or not. And you have to be there every day to, you know, to really know what's going on. So imagine being a head coach and being handcuffed like that. I mean, and then I'm I'm asking this guy who thinks Wilkes is equally at fault. What should he have done? You know, what should he have done? Quit. Plus, you know, these jobs are so rare to come by in the NFL. Just getting one once is huge. But it's also, you know, also there's an added motivation for black head coaches to try to, you know, break this glass ceiling better than they've done in the past. And to be a breakthrough, you know, head coach as an, as an African-American is huge. I mean, the, the weightiness of that is enormous. So, I mean, so what was Wilkes to do? I mean, he's like surrounded by wolves. Now, fortunately, he had a, um, you know, Terry McDonough was the nice guy in the room for, and supportive of Wilkes. And uh, it's interesting, Wilkes said in the deposition, too, that they asked him, um, did you ever see uh, um, Terry McDonough acting, you know, um, inappropriately or berating anyone or, you know, F-bombing anyone or, you know, uh, taking on, and Wilkes said no. No, I never saw him. He was always very kind with me. And I just took, saw him take the brunt of Bidwell's uh, wrath a number of times. And um, so, you know, it's a mess. There'll be more to come. Um, and, Did you want uh, me to read from some of the uh, the Tisha Thompson story on yes. ESPN? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so this is from the start. I'm going to skip over some of the details that Walter mentioned about, uh, you know, responses from the lawyers and Wilkes and stuff like right. that. So um, from the story, Bidwell and other team executives communicated with Kime throughout his suspension for drunk driving, including while the Cardinals negotiated a three-year, 
$39 million contract extension with running back David Johnson, Wilkes said. The NFL said at the time it would not impose additional punishment against Kime after the team suspended him. Quote, it was a directive from Kime as well as Bidwell, Wilkes said in deposition. They both knew. Uh, Cardinals attorneys later complained to the NFL appointed arbiter that Wilkes's attorney did not allow cross-examination, which you mentioned before. Um, according to the correspondence reviewed by ESPN, Cardinals attorneys previously asked Michigan to destroy the videotape and transcript to, w- to Wilkes's testimony, and then they ruled to keep it for the time being. Um, and then just scrolling forward a little bit, uh, when Kime was suspended for five weeks and fined $200,000, and he wasn't allowed to enter the team facility. Bidwell then initially ordered Wilkes and others to have no communication with Kime, but then Wilkes said former Cardinals vice president Mike Disner gave him a burner phone sometime between July 18th and July 20th. Wilkes said Disner told him that the two of them, along with Kime, McDonough, and Matt Cara, is it Caracel? Caracel? I don't know how to say that person. Yeah. C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-O. Do you know who the yeah. former vice Caracciolo. president? Yeah. Caracciolo. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Matt Caracciolo uh, received burner phones. Disner showed him how his phone had been preloaded with everybody's initials and phone numbers. Bidwell himself used a burner phone to communicate with Kime, who had multiple burner phones, according to Wilkes. Quote, with me being a first-year head coach, I felt uncomfortable from the beginning that I worked this hard to get to this plateau and this opportunity, and then I was presented with this situation with being unethical, Wilkes testified. Kime and Wilkes had one text exchange when Kime asked how things were going at practice, according to Wilkes's testimony. That was the only time I reached out to Mr. Kime, Wilkes said in testimony. But Wilkes testified that Kime and Disner communicated during Kime's suspension to solidify a new deal for David Johnson. And then the Cardinals announced Johnson's contract extension on September 8th, 2018, less than three weeks after Kime returned from his suspension. And then uh, he talks more about uh, meeting with Terry McDonough and how six days after the Kime suspension, he they were talking about the discomfort, which lead to the leads to the heated conversation uh, between Bidwell and McDonough that Walter talked about earlier. And then this one I thought was interesting. I'll just include this as the last detail. Before Kime's suspension, Wilkes said he felt like he had a good relationship with Bidwell, but Bidwell's demeanor chain demeanor toward me changed. He said, after the McDonough incident on the field, the owner became less communicative, very nonchalant, according to Wilkes. And then you've talked before, Walter, about how at the press conference after firing Wilkes, Bidwell said, this was on me. We made a mistake in hiring Steve Wilkes. And it's not hard to connect the dots of where the relationship started to sour. Yeah, except that also then he went went on to scapegoat Wilkes, like, you know, um, for the poor play of the team um, and really pinned it on him, uh, you know, and was so smug about it. And then um, then had the temerity to laud Steve Kine at that press conference. For, and reminded everybody that Steve Kime was, um, you know, 
GM of the year that they with BA they won more games than any other coach with Kime as GM. You used the occasion to lionize Steve Kime and um, you know say that he was worthy of a raise, another raise for the great job he's been doing. It was disgusting and so disingenuous uh, in, with regards to to Steve Wilkes. I mean, the part that you were saying that Bidwell said it's on me was he said it in a very kind of a, um, I don't know, kind of a disingenuous way, I thought. Dismissive of Steve Wilkes, you know, very dismissive yeah. of like, oh, this right. person, I... I wanted to right. give him a chance, which obviously plays into a lot of the right. the racial stereotypes around black coaches and the opportunities that they're given right. in the sport is that, you know, this idea that any job you're given, you should be grateful for. And all of the the tropes that come with black coaches who, one, don't get hired as head coaches in the first place and two get hired for the worst of the worst coaching jobs. Right. And Bidwell actually corroborates corroborated back then what Wilkes was claiming in his deposition was how Bidwell's attitude towards Wilkes changed because Bidwell, I remember him saying in that firing press conference how as early as week two, I knew we were in, you know, that, that this was unacceptable, you know, the product on the field. I knew that, you know, I already realized that this was not going to work. So... I mean, but here's what I go back to is think of the hand that Steve Wilkes was dealt. He's not picking the roster. He didn't pick the offensive coaches. He had a GM who got popped for a DUI, excessive DUI, taking a five-week suspension all the way through. It would have been better if the suspension was the first five weeks of the season, the regular season. I mean, if your GM is picking the roster, and he's not there at training camp every day. You know, he's missed. I mean, it's just colossal that they'd even let that happen. And that's one of the main reasons why they wanted the burner phones, or Bidwell did, so that to keep Steve Kime in the loop, so that when he didn't come back, come back, he wouldn't be blindsided by things that were happening in practice. Because after all, it was going to be Kime's roster. Kimes offense, you know, um, and it was in reverse with Kingsbury that it was going to be Kimes roster and Kimes defense. Was, or, or basically Kimes whole staff, excuse me, because the only uh, co assistant coach that Steve Kime okayed that had ties to Kingsbury in the past was David Ray the wide receiver coach, and he was fired after two years and went to um, Vanderbilt to be their um, office coordinator. I mean, Kime was a control freak after B.A. I mean, he got pretty much bossed around by B.A. But once Kime had Wilkes and Kingsbury, both guys that I don't think other guys he wanted as head coach, had other guys in mind, and then sort of domineered over, um, you know, it, it really limited what, what, uh, the, the chances Steve Wilkes would have. 
I mean, Wilkes was also trying to change the Cardinals from a 3-4 to a 4-3. That was going to take time. <clears throat> but the offense was so awful. And Wilkes was a sitting duck. I mean, he's not an offensive coach. He's a defensive guy. And, uh, you know, Mike McCoy was in charge, and he's fired at midseason. I mean, that was the worst offense, Cardinals offense, I have ever seen. I mean, it was just awfully coached, totally vanilla. If you were trying to lose, that's how you do it. <clears throat> and then, I mean, Sam Bradford was awful. And, you know, basically the, making money that he didn't wasn't earning. And then Josh Rosen was green coming in and, you know, and then there's switch coordinators and Byron Lefferts. It was a colossal mess. T to make Steve Wilkes the scapegoat of all of that was, I, I thought, egregious. And, you know, I know fans were so brainwashed by Bidwell into thinking that this was all Wilkes. But now that we know what was going on behind the scenes, now we know how critical that training camp was. And what the dynamics were. Oh boy. You know, then you had <coughs> you also had the, the shenanigans with Pat P going on. There was just so much going on and um it's just tough. Um the whole thing for Wilkes was wrong place, wrong time. Um couldn't have been worse. I don't think any coach in that situation stood a chance. Unless it was an offensive coach who could turn that offense around. Because um, there were some talented pieces there. But by like week three, the whole offensive line was destroyed. Four of the five starters were out, just like last year. I mean, right off the bat. Um, it's just made to fail. But in light of I'd love to hear Wilkes under cross-examination because I don't know what they would have on him. I mean, it, it's pretty much proven now there are photos of these burner phones. Did Steve Wilkes want the burner phones? No. Were those were those photos confirmed to be real? The the photos with the the different um initials yeah. of the those those were yeah. confirmed. Okay. I wasn't sure if that was a real or a fake tweet when I first saw it. Well, Kyle Odegaard posted it. And he had it through sources and he was working in the building then. So There you go. That's that's, a, that's all the sourcing there. I need. Kyle's right. very reliable. I didn't see it coming from him. Yeah. I saw it from someone else. As far as I know, I mean, there's no question now that there were burner phones whose idea was that well it has to come from the top the same way that tampering breaking the rules to get um, Jonathan Gannon to uh, express his interest in the Cardinals coaching job um, is on Bidwell more than anyone else it always is on has to go through the top guy and if it didn't, it's still his problem for not training his his uh, his uh, you know staff well enough to let them know you've got to you know any major decision you've got to run through me. But clearly, Bidwell has shown that, like others, but I mean he's not alone. But he's shown that he's willing to be deceptive, and he's also willing to lie. 
and um, you know the birthday hangover on both of them, and there was a slight rift that was created when Bidwell wanted to move on from BA, um, while Kaim wanted BA's choices, James Betcher for head coach, and like Byron Leftwich for OC. And and just um, you know putting back in BA, BA's assistance, um, so I mean because of that you know and Bidwell didn't want that now he's got a GM that's not on the same page, and Bidwell hires you know um, Steve Wilkes, who I don't think was you know high on Kimes' radar. Bidwell was in a position to you want to placate Steve Kime or make it e easier for him to try to jive with with his own choice of Steve with Bidwell's own choice of Steve Wilkes. And so you could see where Wilkes, I mean where Bidwell might have been easily influenced to uh say yes to the burner phones <clears throat> because Steve Kyan was worried there wasn't much trust there. <clears throat> I mean if fans go back to that bizarre press conference when when uh Wilkes was hired. I'll never forget, first of all, it was clear what Bidwell's agenda was in hiring him. He told him explicitly, you're here to um, work with players who have, quote-unquote, different personalities. And this was the problem with B.A., was he had no tolerance for, you know, it was my way or the highway. If it wasn't, if it wasn't his way, then the player was a failure in progress. Um, you know, and, and B.A. would not hesitate to say so publicly. Bigwell took exception to that and now wanted a coach who could coach D.J. Humphreys, Robert Kimdiche, guy Pat P., guys with different personalities that, you know, um, needed somehow coaches to connect with the way B.A. didn't. And to Wilkes's credit, DJ played better under Wilkes. Um, played well enough before he got hurt again. And Kim DJ had his best game as a pro, a three sack performance in your hometown, San Diego, Kyle. Um, he was dominant that day. It was everything what you know um, Steve Kimes saw in him to want to draft him, and Michael Bidwell endorsed him, saying, "I'm a judge, good judge of character." And so I approve it. We met with him and I approve his character after, you know, Kim DJ was, had jumped off of a, a, a balcony and a drunken, you know, frat party or whatever that scenario was. And there was questions about his, you know, love of the game of football, all of that. I mean, it was, uh, you know, so th that's why Wilkes put a hurdle in the locker. He, tried to do um, things a, a high school teacher would do to try to engage, give each player a brick to build on. I mean, in retrospect now, I know that seems foolish. You know, these are pros. But, you know, you got to give credit, uh, in my opinion, to Wilkes for trying something. And with the, quest the questionable players that were high on the list of being different personalities, I thought he did pretty dang well. 
But if you're being hired by an organization and that's your number one priority and it's not winning, I mean, necessarily when you're hired and then you get handcuffed the way he was by the, by the owner, by the GM, you know, he didn't have a chance in my opinion. And I don't, you know, I thought he made some strides on defense. You know, I thought there was some good things. They didn't um, defend the run very well. Um, but books wasn't wrong. There, you have to have gap integrity. You have to, you know, to stop the run. And they were losing that integrity. But you can't, he couldn't do it for them. They, I thought they didn't prove um, and plus, the defense was on the field longer than any defense in the NFL because the offense was three and out more often than, than not or turning the ball over. So, but, uh, you know, I've, you know, and here's the thing, too, is that the way that Wilkes was scapegoated, you know, it could have crushed his career. And think of the resiliency of Steve Wilkes. I mean, he goes... Fortunately, he gets the DC job with the Browns. You know, after this whole debacle, somebody still believes in him. The Browns, even before that, he had to go be the defensive coordinator at the University of Missouri for a season. That was after the Browns, um, because he found himself in an incredibly similar situation. Only this time, he won and done because the head coach, like himself. Freddie Kitchens, a former Cardinal coach under B.A., was one and done as a head coach. And so with him went the staff. So now, I mean, and Wooks did a solid job in his first year in Cleveland. It wasn't spectacular, but it was solid enough to definitely have him stay on as coordinator. And then it got so bad, you know, he felt he had to, you know, try something different. So he went to the University of Missouri as defensive coordinator and then bounced back by getting back on the Panthers staff. And then just did so remarkably last year, showed his prowess as a head coach, interim head coach, and got that Panthers team playing the best football they've played since, you know, 2015 um, for that stretch of games. I mean, they were putting it on people. They were running the ball. They were being physical. I mean, it's just sad that, you know, he didn't get that Panthers job, but he landed in a good place, uh, succeeding D'Amico Ryans in San Francisco. He's got arguably the best defense in the NFL to coach right now. It's going to make him look real good. <laughs> So, just, it's a testament to his character and his prowess as a football coach and his perseverance that he's he's persevered through all this. And now he's, you know, he's speaking his mind under oath um, and telling it like it is. Um, and not for his own, just his own sake. It's for the sake of blackhead coaches. Um and the future of black head coaches. I mean, here's the thing, and I'll end it up with this, is that it corroborates what, what Brian Flores was. It's, it, Wilk's situation was so similar to the Flores situation. 
in that Flores in his first year was then being told and commanded to tank games, which is the worst thing you could ask of a new head coach. <clears throat> um, and, you know, good news for Flores was that he refused. And he had those Dolphins winning down the stretch, not losing. And it cost them, you know, you know, draft pick. Then the next year, woke, um, Flores wanted, didn't want Tua. He wanted Justin Herbert. Imagine how different that would have been. Um, but the last minute, the Dolphins selected Tua instead. I mean, there, there were, there was no alignment there. Basically, Flores was on his own too. How dare he defy the owner? And here's the thing, and this is the point he made, and I think it's true with Wilkes, is this is what happens particularly with blackhead coaches, is that when you're getting a job like that, there's an automatic assumption that you must be willing to do a quid pro quo. That, in other words, if you were lucky enough for us to hire you as a blackhead coach, then you should be willing to do whatever nefarious things we ask you to do or very difficult things we ask you to do which is like this kind of added, you know, this condescending attitude that like, you're lucky you have this job. So when I tell you to do this, to tank games, you should tank games. If I tell you to use a burner phone and violate NFL rules for a suspended um, employee, you're going to use burner phones because you're lucky you got this job. And that's just so demeaning and demoralizing. And, you know, I mean, many of us, in our own workplaces been asked to do stuff on a similar level because of somebody else's agenda. I mean, that's just, you know, sort of, and at the peril of losing our jobs, losing our careers, losing our livelihoods. I mean, I was asked as a department head on a, at a high school to do some things by principals that I never in a million years would have done and disagreed with 100%. But it's like, you know, what do you do? And I finally quit being department head. And I don't know anyone who's done that because of the salary and this and that. It was a pain in the ass. And, and doing somebody, carrying out somebody else's agenda because... You're the one that gets blamed for it when you do it. They people think it's coming from you, when actually it's coming from somebody else. <clears throat> but you're not in a position either to say who it is because you can't throw your own bosses under the bus. So you're taking the heat for somebody else's bad decisions, and that's what happened to Steve Wilkes. He had to take the heat for an awful and you know um, an unethical decision by the team owner. And by team executives who perpetuated, perpetuated this, and by a five-week suspended um, GM of NFL football team, it was like you know, I mean, being surrounded like Custer's last stand. There is no way, given all those circumstances, that Steve Wilkes had an iota of a chance to take that team out. You know, to to. Uh, to come out of that without the outcome that he had. Could he have coached a little better in certain spots? Of course he could be. He's a first-year head coach, too. Everybody should get a little bit of slack on that. 
But man, I mean, he was a good man. Larry Fitzgerald has a good idea of who good men are. He had very high opinions of of and uh, of Steve Wilkes, as did a lot of the players in there. They knew where he was coming from, and they knew he had a good heart and was coming from the right place. So, when Speaking it gets of back which, to just, Florio, oh, sorry, I was going to yeah, say go just ahead. real quick since you mentioned it. Happy birthday, Larry Fitzgerald. He turns 40 today. Woohoo! Yeah, Fitz. Hope you have a great day, man. Carpe the BDM in style, um, like you do every day. What a what a great guy and what an amazing player. And what an icon in Arizona. You know? So but lastly, the Mike Florios, you know, everyone's pissed at Florio for harping on the Cardinals. I actually think it's could be a real advantage for us because it's kind of like turning on the light and getting the cockroaches out of the kitchen. I mean, somebody has to do this. I mean, it's been more than overdue. If the Cardinals are ever going to change, it's got to change, you know, with Bidwell. They've got to get Bidwell out of there in some capacity, you know, have his sister take over. I mean, he should resign from the NFL Diversity Committee. I mean, it's just what a contradiction um, for him to have gone through this situation with Wilkes and be on the Diversity Committee. I mean, come on. Um, you know, and in light of that quid pro quo and the, the, the scapegoating, and the, you know, it's just got awful. Um, and, you know, but... Bidwell's an equal opportunity employer when it comes to cussing people out and treating people like shit. I mean, he has a history of that all the way through the building um, with all the, a lot of the employees. Um, and so what I'm hoping that happens, and I, I thank guys like Florio who care enough to keep shining a light on, to keep the cockroaches, you know, try to crunch the cockroaches from, from growing in the kitchen, is that, you know, you got to Bidwell, if he does the right thing, could put the organization in, in the capable hands of Monty Austin for and promote him to vice president, uh, the president, team president, excuse me, the job that currently Michael Bidwell has himself. Like, so, and Monty could still be, you know, doing like, you know, a lot of the GM stuff. He also could be like in charge of football operations and decision football decisions, which would be awesome. Plus, you give him a little raise, and you know, and because you have this Dave Sears um, in the building, and Dave Sears, in my opinion, right now might be the most valuable employee in that building because of his draft prowess. Um, I'm going to go through this next time, but Monty has a history of drafting um, injured players. Um, I've got it all mapped out. He, he did so um, with the Titans. I mean, Caleb Farley, his first, first, first round pick there was Isaiah Wilson, the tackle who didn't even last, um, you know, was a total bust. Um, got popped for, you know, DUI early in his, that whole thing was just his second pick 
Kristen Fulton was off and on injured throughout his whole time there. Darian um, uh, Evans, who's now a free agent, because he nearly missed the his third preseason game for the Bills, missed the team playing and had to chart charter a plane to get there, but then shined in the second half of the game. But he was injured while in Tennessee. Caleb Farley in 2021. Everybody worried about the injuries then, and he's still he's on the IR now. I mean, there's just this ridiculous history, Traylon Burks, um, going through it. Um, you know, you know, he's had a couple good good picks in there, but his his biggest, uh, you know, Elijah Molden has injured um, quite a bit. Um, so, um, Dylan Ranas, the tackle from North Dakota State, second pick in 2021, towards ACL. I mean, but now it's gotten to the point where look at the Cardinals' day two rap, draft picks. All three of them were medical red flags. I mean, you had. You know, Garrett Williams, who we still haven't seen. Or you had B.J. Ojolardi, excuse me, in the second round, who came out weeks ago, we found out that during the draft he was having knee, you know, procedures. I mean, no one, I didn't know about, about that then. So the Cardinals must have knew, known about that, but drafted him anyway. Now he's finally back. Hopefully he'll be okay. Then you had Garrett Williams, who hasn't set foot on the field yet. Meanwhile, a guy like Eli Ricks, an undrafted player from Alabama, is like tearing the league up in coverage. Um, you know, we really needed Garrett Wilson to be here um, sooner rather than later. And then in the third round, you had Michael Wilson, who had those freak injuries at, at Stanford, and hopefully it stays there. But the history hasn't been good. And then if you apply that to the Cardinals injury situation, it's just mind-boggling how you want Colt McCoy back, who was really looked like he was done last year. And I think he was. So you want Colt McCoy back. You want DJ Humphreys to be the the guy to hitch Monty and JG's wagon to, who missed the last nine games of the season. You know? You got um, Kyler Murray, of course. That situation with the injuries and all that, picking up his his uh, his slack. Um, so you got that situation going. Um, you know, it's just one thing after the next. It's like, don't you pay attention to injuries at all? I mean, shouldn't they factor into what you're doing and how you're investing in players? I mean, look at Rondell Moore. I mean, that was a Steve Kine pick, but what a risky pick. I mean, he had one great year at Purdue, but then couldn't get on the field. And look at him now. You can't keep him on the field. That's why I've been begging the Cardinals to trade him to somebody who thinks they can get a season out of him. I mean, when is this whole injury thing going to end? I mean, where people make decisions like, you know what, um, if this a person is just – you know, um, prone to injuries. This is my worry about Kyler Murray is he put so much strain on his legs. I think he's always going to be prone to soft tissue issue injuries, which he's incurred every year, which has made it difficult for him to finish seasons. 
I mean, he hasn't finished one season yet, strongly. I mean, his records in November and December and January are terrible. I mean, it just hits a wall. But part of that is fatigue. Part of that is teams catching up with him. And also part of that is the injury factor. He has not played traditionally well coming back from injuries. He's always said he needs to be 100% to protect himself. And I think mentally that's where he's always been. So it's frustrating for him. But when are you going to take into account how injuries should affect the status of players and who you draft? You know, I mean, if Ojolari has, the, he also had another injury. I forget what it was. If he has these injuries and you know he'll be out all the way till training camp and hope to get him at some time in training camp. Do you really have to be that desperate to draft him right there? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, if they had told me that, you know, here's what he's dealing with, I wouldn't have made that pick. There's no way. I mean, Garrett Williams, I loved him as a player at Syracuse, but the injury was a red flag to me. I, I wonder in both their cases how long they would have slid. Because if you can't, you know, you only get these rookies for four years. And if you're pissing away one year already and you're starting off on an injury situation, ooh, I don't know, that's tough. Fortunately, Wilson's been the part and he's been, a, let's just pray he can hold up and last the season. He was not able to do that at Stanford, so... And he's a physical player who mixes it up. I love that about him. So let's see if he can withstand the NFL season. I hope he can because he looks like a really exciting player. But at some point, you know, um, a focus needs to be made on injuries and how they affect you. Well, look at David Johnson and Tyran Matthew. This organization is like rewards players for injuries. And, you know, it's not good business to do that i mean and and what are you getting in return when they you know when you do that i mean matthew johnson murray three examples of guys who they gave the bag to early didn't have to and had major injury concerns um you know hopefully monty can learn from this but I I want to put the hand the draft in the hands of Dave Sears, and I think Monty hired him to do that. So, and Sears's recent drafts in Detroit were awesome, um, and he knows the prototypes. And that's the one solace I took with the with the Josh Jones trade was that maybe Dave Sears looked at Josh Jones and just said he's not quite the prototype I want in a left tackle or in a right tackle. So we're going to get what we can for him now because I got in my eye on another guy um, in next year's draft, perhaps, or in free agency next year. Because I think one of those tackles from the Lions open, um, Decker, I think, becomes a free agent. And maybe he's in the mix. But there are definite prototypes that Dave Sears likes. That's why I think Dave Sears could be the most important person in this organization moving forward. And I, they've got to do whatever they can to keep him in the building. And as assistant GM, with the kind of moves the Cardinals made, and credit Austin Ford for making these great trades, 
um, to get up picks for next year. Which, by the way, now fans are worried some of those picks are, or one of them might be taken away because of the Bidwell situation, which is just galling. And, you know, really, really, I mean, <laughs> Gambo and, and, uh, and Burns yesterday were go saying, imagine the, you know, just firestorm from the Cardinal fans if they take away one of those first round picks for next year, 2024, because of Bidwell's burner phones and, and lying about it. Unbelievable. So, um, but Dave Sears is, I can tell you this right now around the league, he's building real big momentum. And if the Cardinals don't promote him to GM or do something, um, this is the guy you don't want to lose. So we covered a lot of ground. Kyle, any last-minute thoughts from the Little Rock? We covered a lot of ground today. This is going to be close to a two-hour podcast, and I am excited for it. Uh, yeah, we... I'm excited to see how uh, how the roster comes together next week. I'm sure we'll we'll get together again, maybe before the first game or if not right after the first game. And I'm curious to see what they do. The thing that I thought was kind of fun this week is the the idea of Jonathan Gannon saying it's a competitive advantage to not name a starting quarterback <laughs> for week one. I was having some fun right. with that just because. As long as they know who the starting quarterback is for week one, I guess. But if you're telling people in the locker room, eventually it's going to leak out. There's no way that information right. can stay airtight if you're telling everyone on the team and all of the coaches who the starting quarterback is. Eventually that information will leak out. Right. Yeah. And So yeah. as long as you tell the team who the starting quarterback is week one, I guess that's good. But I thought that was a... That was a, a silly response of like, it's a competitive advantage to not name a starter between Clayton Toon and Josh Dobbs. I, I thought that was amusing. And uh, yeah, ready for week one. <laughs> gotta love it. <laughs> competitive, right. Gotta love it. Well, if there's one guy who, who hopefully, if you've listened to Buda Baker recently, he's kind of excited about this team and how hard they're going to play and how fast they're going to play. So, and he's, he's, he thinks fans are going to be in for a sweet surprise. I hope that's right. It doesn't that. matter how hard you tank. You still have a chance to beat Washington. <laughs> no, I think, you know, these guys that are, you know, they've taken a lot of the egos out of this team. And I think they're playing for each other. And they're, you know, it's us against the world. So who knows? Um but uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks for your support. Uh, once again, um, Kyle, you're the best. And, uh, you know, I'll look forward to talking to you next time. Um, for all of you, may the red rain of waiver wire confetti shower down on you into the red, red sea. Red rain.